I have no idea why my dad did this. I never asked him. I'm assuming it's because in the 70s, the price of meat went up and, you know, we were kind of in an inflationary period. My dad decided to raise some chickens. He got about 24 biddies. As best I can recall, he used this big square playpen that I had as a child, the kind they don't make now. And he, he wired it all up, and he put these biddies in there. And at first, they were cute. And then they became a chore. Because every day, I'd have to go in there before going to school. I'd have to go in there, and you know, there was a little heat lamp going over them. And I'd have to feed them with this really nasty-smelling feed. I don't know how they ate it, but they didn't seem to mind. And, of course, the little bitties grew and became chickens. We had to move them out of there and put them in a larger pen. And, and, you know, we never named any of them. It was a good thing because my dad's plan was not to have pet chickens. My dad's plan was to have fried chicken. And so, after a while, when they became mature and probably more of an annoyance that he wanted, we had this day of slaughter. That sounds biblical, doesn't it? In the great day of slaughter. Anyway, we had this day and my grandmother was there. My dad was there. And I had never seen anything like this before, even though both my grandparents were farmers. I'd never seen anything like this. Hog killings, yes. But chicken killings, no, I'd never seen anything. And my grandmother would reach and grab one of those chickens. I'm going, oh, that's so sweet. She's going to pet that thing. And then she'd yank like this. And she'd hand it to my dad. You've never seen this, have you? She'd hand it to my dad. And my dad had a hatchet. And he'd take the head right off that chicken. Then, of course, they'd go through the process and, you know, getting them all ready to go in the freezer. But there was one chicken that would not die. <laughs> she cut the head off. My dad cut the head off that thing, and it took off. Some of you raised on a farm, you know this can happen, right? The thing took off. And ran straight under the house. Our house is up on bricks. Went under the house. My dad looks at me and says, Jimmy, go get it. I'm scared to go under the house today. Some haunted headless chicken under there. I don't. You know, even though that chicken ran around for a little while after it lost its head, there was no connection between the head and the body anymore. That was severed. It was an instinctual kind of thing. And so there was lots of activity, lots of motion. But there was no connection to the head, so there was no purpose about it. The the headless chicken didn't just run under the house because it was trying to hide. You know, kind of get under there and heal up a little bit. It just ran. It happened to go under the house. And as we take a look at church, not just Grace Fellowship, but church in general, the local churches, a lot of times what you can see is a lot of activity, a lot of flurry, a lot of running around, but it doesn't seem to be purposeful. It doesn't seem to have the the direction. And this kind of makes sense. Because God's Word teaches us that Christ, Jesus, is head of the church And if somehow that church becomes disconnected from the head, you can still have a lot of activity. You can still have a lot of flurrying around and feathers flying. But is there purpose? 
Is there direction? Is there meaning? We talked last week about being a part of the body of Christ and how none of us is unimportant. And that's true. It doesn't matter where you are in life, how old you are, what your skin color is, how much money you have in the bank or don't have in the bank. None of that matters because all of us are important in the body of Christ. None of us is unimportant. But none of us is all important either. In other words, I'm not the head of the church. The elders aren't the heads of the church. The Pope isn't the head of the church. The Bible teaches us that Jesus is head of the church. And the only way as a church that we can be unified, together, have direction, purpose, and meaning, the only way is for us as a body to stay connected with the head. And so this morning we talked last week about being an active church member. Today we want to talk about being a unifying church member. And what does that mean to be united as the body of Christ? So if you have your Bibles, I want to ask you to open up to Ephesians chapter 4. Ephesians 4. We're just going to look at three verses. Let me encourage you, as I do often, take the time this afternoon to go and read the entirety of Ephesians chapter 4 to give you a broader picture. And in fact, read the chapters before and after. Just kind of puts everything within context. This morning, we're only going to focus on the first three verses in Ephesians chapter 4, but I think it'll be helpful for us. And so if you've got your Bibles, you can open there. If you don't have them, we've got it up on the screen and I think in your notes as well. Ephesians chapter 4 verses 1 through 3. And this is what God's word says. Therefore, therefore I, the prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk worthy of the calling you've received. With all humility and gentleness, with patience, accepting one another in love, diligently keeping the unity of the Spirit with the peace that binds us. Father, help us to understand and apply this to our lives. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's start by focusing on the last portion of that. Diligently keeping the unity of the Spirit with the peace that binds us. The first truth I want to share with you this morning that we pull from this passage is this, that unity in the church is the responsibility of each and every member. Unity is not just the responsibility of those who've been elected, chosen to serve, or called to serve. Unity is the responsibility of all of us. We each have a stake in this. And so these words, diligently keeping, if we were to go and analyze those words, what we discover is that this, this phrase in the Greek implies the exertion of energy, the exertion of effort, and it involves a motivation to keep things moving or to accomplish something. In other words, church unity does not happen by accident. The headless chicken ran out of the house by accident. But church unity doesn't happen that way. If we're going to be united, if we're going to be one, if we're going to be on the same page spiritually, then all of us, not just the leaders, but but everyone from those who, who greet in the morning, those who work in the hospitality ministry, those who teach on Sunday morning or some other time during the day, those who work in the nursery, those who are in powerhouse right now, those who trim the hedges and blow off the front porch, all of us. 
together need to be united. We take responsibility for the unity of the church to attain it and then to maintain it. Does this mean we all have to be alike? No, not at all. As a matter of fact, one of the great things that we celebrate about our church is the diversity that exists within here. But in spite of that diversity, we can still have unity. My good friend Hal Cobb, whom I miss on a daily basis, used to say, unity does not mean uniformity. In other words, we don't all have to be alike. Unity can and should be present even in a very diverse church, even in a church more diverse than our church. The kind of unity that Paul is talking about here is a spiritual unity. It's not that we're trying to, we've got this cookie cutter and we're trying to cut everybody out in the same shape. We're not talking about trying to make sure everybody's externals match, that we all dress alike, that we all talk alike, that we all act alike. No, we're not talking about that. What we're talking about here when we're talking about unity is a unity that is spiritual. Here, why are we unified? Because we have one father. We have one savior. We have one spirit who lives in us. We have one purpose. We have one mission. We have one passion and we have one destination. And I got to tell you, the things that we have in common are far greater than the things that would separate us, that would pull us apart, that would drive us apart. Our differences in the light of who Jesus is and who we are in Christ, our differences don't hold a candle to the unity that God can create. And can you imagine the witness to the world when they see God's people, diverse people coming together with a singular heart? Is that what Jesus wants? Absolutely. In the Garden of Gethsemane, that's exactly what he prayed for. Can you imagine that? I don't know if you, if you had kind of a last prayer time. If you just said, hey, I, listen, I know, I know that this morning when I have my quiet time, this is going to be the last time I'm able to close out the world and to pray. What would you pray for? Well, your list and my list may be a little different. But what Jesus prayed for, at least a big part of what he prayed for, was that we would be one. You see, Jesus prayed for himself. He prayed for his disciples. And then he prayed for us. For those who would believe because of the disciples. We we are them. We are the church. We're the body of Christ. And Jesus prayed for us. And this is what he prayed. Listen, I pray not only for these, but also for those who believe in me through their message. May they all be one. As you, Father, are in me and I am in you. May they also be one in us so that the world may believe you sent me. Imagine this. The unity of the church is part of our Christian witness. So what does disunity say? How does it reflect on Christ? How does it reflect on his church? How does it reflect on our salvation? That is why we're, Paul says to diligently work for unity, to diligently reach out for unity, to diligently pursue unity in the church because it's important. 
And it probably is far more important than you or I could ever even imagine. Because the world's watching. So how are we to do this? Well, good news is we don't have to guess. The second truth we draw from this passage is this, that unity happens when we value our high calling. Walk worthy of the calling that you have received. When we become believers, we are called into Christ. We all know that, right? We're called into Christ to be part of who Christ is, to be covered by the blood of Christ, to be brought into unity with him. But we're also called into the church. And I think this is where so many people miss it. Yes, I'm a Christian. Yes, you know, I, I believe in Jesus. But no, I don't need the church. Hang on, wait a minute. Isn't the church the body of Christ? How, how can we have this love relationship with Christ but have no need for his church? What, what's going on here? What we discover in Scripture is that to connect with Christ is to connect with this body of Christ. There, you cannot go in the New Testament and find a churchless Christian. I mean, okay, thief on the cross, but he's the exception to the rule. Whenever a person came to Christ, they were brought into the life of the church. They were baptized. They were united with the church and became part of the church. Our call is a call to connect and a call to grow. Our call is a call to serve, to to link arms with others and to serve together and help shoulder the load. Our call is a call to worship with one voice, with one heart, our Father in heaven. Our call is a call to be part of the great commission. This treasure has been placed in jars of clay, earthen vessels. On everyday dishes. This gospel has been given to us. The grace of God has been given to us. And then we have this privilege. Of being able to share it with others. To be able to lay it out before others. And say exactly. Hey listen. Exactly what Caleb did this morning. Here's my story. And I'm sticking to it. This is how I came to know Christ. This is how my life was changed. And transformed by his power in God was patient with me. He stuck with me even when I slipped backwards, even when I didn't pay him that much attention. He, he didn't abandon me. He didn't walk away. He didn't wash his hands of me. He stayed with me. And he kept calling me back. When I was 15 years old, I heard that call and responded. That's the kind of God we have. It's the kind of God we serve. And if you're a believer, you have a story. Telling that story is part of what it is. And and listen, you can get all kinds of great encouragement in the body of Christ to help you as you begin to tell your story. There's no chance of unity, however, if there are individual members who who don't understand the value of their high calling. Your high calling is not just your ministry. Your high calling is not just that you're a Christian. Your high calling is to be part of the body of Christ. As I said last week, there is no concept in the Bible of free-range Christians. Just not there. Lone Ranger kinds of Christians. Therefore, we must strive 
for unity in the body of Christ and come together around our high calling. We as a church, you know, we have a, we have a mission statement. And it's kind of funny. I guess I could put you on the spot right now. Caleb kind of did this with the elders yesterday, put them on the spot uh, to say, hey, listen, what's the mission statement? What do you come around? And what we come around is really, really simple. And that is we as a body of Christ, we Grace Fellowship, the reason we exist is to glorify God by bringing people into a life-changing relationship with Jesus Christ. Just imagine if for each of us, we got up every day going, those are my marching orders. That's what I'm here for. Not just when I'm in the building, but that's what I'm here for each and every day. I am about, as part of this body of Christ, I am about bringing glory to my God by bringing people into a life-changing relationship with his son, Jesus Christ. That brings us together. And we can get that focus. When we get an idea of our high calling, we value our high calling, it promotes unity in the body. Now, we also want to note this, that unity happens when we value our fellow members, when we value one another. That's when unity really begins to happen. And this, notice, notice what he's saying here. He says, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, accepting one another in love, just because you know unity is important doesn't mean it's necessarily going to happen automatically. Each of us is different. Your, your giftedness is different. What, uh, what Caleb did up here earlier, and Caleb and Sarah, as they sing, some of you go, I couldn't do that. Even when Velma came up to share the announcement a little bit earlier, you're sitting there going, I could never get up in front of all those people and do that. Or maybe you were thinking, I could never go to Atlanta and just carry uh, you know, uh, scarves and, and gloves and, and hats. And co- I could never go to Atlanta and, and hand those things out. But let me tell you what, God designed you and shaped you and made you and gifted you and infused you with passions and skills. God's giving you things for a purpose. And we bring those together in Christ, but we're all different. We're kind of like the snowflakes, you know, no two are alike. But God is able to take radically different people. And weave them together into a whole. And we get glimpses of that in our church, don't we? We get glimpses of that unity in our church. But I have a heart to see that unity grow. Where we're not just thinking about it when we're here. We're thinking about it when we're not here. That when that person came up and shared that prayer request, that it's actually something that you think about. And sometimes, sometimes you need help. Sometimes you need triggers. Um, I wear this light blue armband. Uh, my uh, college roommate gave it to me. Um, he has prostate cancer and evidently light blue is the awareness color for prostate cancer. But this helps me remember to pray for him and then to pray for those others who are also in our very church, those who are on our prayer list, those who are in our community, who are dealing with the same thing. Sometimes we need those triggers, but that's part of unity. Let me tell you something. You start praying for somebody, that brings a connection 
that is deeper than just running into them in the hallway of a church building. So how does Paul tell us we are to to attain and maintain this unity? We're we're supposed to diligently go after it. We're supposed to value our higher calling, but we're also to value one another. And so he begins by saying this, with all humility. Humility. What is humility? Humility, if you want to put it on a scale, on one side would be humility, on the other side would be pride. It is the opposite of pride. Someone has said that humility is not thinking less of yourselves, it's thinking of yourself less. In other words, I'm not the center of my world anymore. There's never going to be unity in the church when people walk around with overinflated egos. When we think that we're somehow better or uh, more spiritual or more, more advanced than someone else. True greatness, when defined by Jesus, true greatness is humble service. This is what he said, whoever wants to become great among you. Listen, if you, want to be, if you want to be great, then you must become a servant. Whoever wants to be first must become a slave to all. Those who are gentle as, well, I don't want to go there yet. But the key to unity, or at least one of the keys to unity, is that we have a humble spirit. This past, uh, some of you know, I, I was gone a couple of weeks ago. I was up in North Carolina. I was actually with the college roommate who gave me this. And, and Michael Stewart was here and he preached. He did a great job. Um, I got a phone call before I left. I was, you know, whenever you get ready to go, you're frantically trying to make sure you've got everything and, and, and you haven't forgotten anything. And it's kind of a hectic time when you're coming back from someplace or getting ready to go to someplace. And that's kind of what I was in the middle of. And I got a phone call from somebody at the church who had a ministry question for me. And in that conversation, I was very abrupt, even to the point of being blunt. I wasn't trying to be mean. But as I got off the phone, I thought, gosh, I didn't sound very loving in that. I, I really didn't sound like a humble, <laughs> a humble servant in that. And so last week, I was able to come back and, and, and talk to him and just say, listen, I'm, I, I, I'm not sure how I came across when I talked to you last, but, but I'm sorry if I was really, really abrupt and, and didn't, didn't sound like I cared what you were saying. And, and, and his response was, very, he received that, and he just said, listen, uh, that's okay. I, I understand. You know, he, did, he didn't say, I forgive you, but it was the tone of what he was saying back to me was, I'm glad. But he said, I'm glad you came up and, and said that. If we had just let that linger out there, it could have created division. But by being humble to go up and say, you know what, I'm sorry. I'm not sure that I offended you, but I, I think I may have said something that was was out of turn, that was, was kind of out of whack. And I just wanted to let you know, if I, I feel like I've hurt you, so I'm really sorry if that happened. And that gives them the opportunity to go, oh, no, 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 I understand. Or to say, listen, thank you. I received that. Thank you. So that relationship can be built back up. We're responsible for unity in the church. He goes on to say, with all gentleness. So we've got humility. What is gentleness? Gentleness, it sounds kind of wimpy. Let's face it. Gentleness sounds kind of wimpy. We want gentleness in our fabric softener. 
But what about gentleness in the church? How does that look? Well, the meaning of this word gentleness is strength under control. Think about it. Strength under control. It doesn't mean you're wimpy. It simply means that this strength is now brought under the control. And that is why uh, we're told that one of the fruits of the Spirit is self-discipline, self-control. Bringing that strength under control. Gentleness doesn't have to prove itself. It doesn't have to show itself. It doesn't have to show off. A gentle person isn't easily offended or eager to strike back. And to top it off, gentleness is a characteristic of Jesus himself who said, I am gentle and humble of heart. And I'm sure that you could ask anyone who happened to be in the temple when Jesus cleared it out that he was not weak. Those who are gentle, Martin Luther said, have a sweet temperament. A sweet temperament. And those are the kind of members that bring unity. He goes on to say, with patience. With patience. Patience is one of those interesting words. It means literally long burning as opposed to someone who has a short fuse. Uh, some of you know about a short fuse. I had an incident. Uh, I, I never lost any fingers over it, but um, it, was, it was well after the 4th of July, and I happened to find a, a firecracker, and it had a short fuse. I mean, this thing was about a quarter of an inch long. And my dad, who smoked, was sitting on the front porch, and I found this thing, and I took it to him, and I said, hey, light this. I don't know if he was trying to teach me a lesson or wasn't paying attention. The man pulled out his cigarette lighter, flicked it. I stuck that thing in it and threw it. It got about three feet from my hand and went boom. Short fuse. Goes off quickly. That's not who to be who we are. We're to have a long fuse, long burning, or it could also mean uh, long tempered instead of being short tempered. It's a very vivid word in the Greek. And a person who is patient is someone who can endure for a long time. Even when the going gets tough, they don't, they're not irritable. They're not cranky and grouchy all the time because of what's going on. They're, they're enduring. You've heard the thing, you know, somebody asks, pray for patience. And listen, praying for patience is a dangerous thing because there's only one way to develop it. To be put in situations where you can be impatient. But this is the characteristic that brings unity in the life of the church, that we, we're not easily offended, that it, it takes something to drive us away. I was once asked by someone what it took for a pastor to have a long tenure. I've been here 11 years, okay? That's a long time now. If you go look at statistics, pastors don't hang around much more than a few years, and then they're gone. At one time, it was down to 18 months. I think it's extended now over two years. But that's a pretty quick tenure, in and out. And they asked me, what does it take to have a long tenure at a church? And, and this was my answer. It takes, it takes a tender heart and thick skin. But you know what? That's also what it takes to be a church member. A tender heart and thick skin. Because people are going to say things. 
They may intend it. They may not intend it. And you're going you're to get your feelings hurt. Listen, if you're, the only way you're not going to get your feelings hurt is to you know, go out on a deserted island and be all by yourself. Maybe nobody will hurt your feelings then. Well, that movie with Tom Hanks, I think when the volleyball floated off, I think he got his feelings hurt then, didn't he? So even with no people around, you may, you may get your feelings hurt. But as a church, we need to develop a, a toughness about us, an endurance about us that says, you know what? I belong here. I'm part of the body. I'm not going to go eject and, 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 and abandon ship just because someone says something to me because I belong here. I'm part of this. And the last thing he says, if we want to have unity in the church, is accepting one another in love. This word accepting means to tolerate, to bear with, uh, to put up with. Now, I don't want you to get the wrong idea because this word tolerance now has is, is kind of been twisted a little bit and redefined in our culture. Tolerance does not mean that we validate sinful behavior of others or harmful, harmful behavior of others. That's not what it means, that we have to accept all behaviors as, as, as normative. That, that's not what tolerance means. It simply means that we are listening to what Jesus said when he said, do not judge so that you won't be judged. For with the judgment that you use, you'll be judged. And with the measure you use, it will be measured to you. So why do you look at the speck in your brother's eye, but you don't notice the log in your own? Or how can you say to your brother, let me take the speck out of your eye and look, there's a log in your own. You hypocrite. First, take the log out of your own eye. And then you'll see clearly how to take the speck out of your brother's eye. Listen, when church members become hypocrites and we become quick to judge in a condemning kind of way, the actions of others are even worse than the motivations of others. That gets us into trouble. Then the church can become a very toxic place, a disunified place place. Now, Jesus does not say that we have to keep our mouths shut when we see people who are in sinful behavior or people who are doing things that are harmful. But he also gives us a way to approach that. We go to them in love, seeking reconciliation, not condemnation. Why? Because the unity of the body is important to us, even for members, even for members who are doing something they ought not be doing. Our aim is to bring them back to be part of the whole, not run them off. Oftentimes in the history of the church, the differences have divided us. I was stunned when I went through the Civil Rights Museum in Birmingham, Alabama. It's, a good, it, it's, it's worth your time and effort to go. You got to see how there, there was a time when there was a very sharp line drawn for no other reason than skin color. That has no place in the body of Christ. Those things that tend to drive us away, we've been given something greater that brings us together. A unity in the body of Christ that we belong together. And it's easy to set up walls. It's easy to be divided and to go our own way. But the church is to be a place of love. A place where we welcome, a welcome refuge to people who are broken and people who are hurting, to people who are abused and and lost, and to sinners. Yes, the church is to be a refuge for people who are struggling with sin. 
That's why Jesus tells us above all, excuse me, Paul tells us, Colossians 3, above all, put on love, the perfect bond of unity. Put on love like a garment. Put it on, the perfect bond of unity. Jesus prayed that his church would be one. And our unity and our love for one another are a testimony to the power of Jesus Christ that he can bring these disparate, this disparate band of, of sinners together. People who are naturally, at heart, selfish, bring us together and make us something greater together than we ever were separate. And you and I, we have the privilege to be a part of that, but it won't happen by accident. We have to work for it. We have to be diligent. We have to think about it. We have to value our high calling, and we have to value value one another. I told you earlier about our, our small groups fair that's going on. I want to I let you know, and this is, I'm beating the drum for it, but I think this is important. If you want to find the best training ground for this, it's in a small group. It really is. It's hard to develop that sometimes when you're just out in, in a big group setting. But when you get connected in a small group, you find that you can, you can drop the pretense. You can be who you are. You find that you're not condemned, but you're loved. That people actually listen and they care about the struggles that you're going through. You find it's a safe environment to be a part of. And you can open God's word and you can search the scriptures, and, and you don't have to worry if you ask a question that somebody's going to say, what are you, stupid? You don't have to worry that somebody's going to think, oh, he's just being irreverent. He's, he doesn't, you know, he just doesn't. No, you can come in and you can say, listen, I don't understand this. And you can find a group of people that go, hey, let's together, let's find out what this means and how it applies to our lives. You can be able to grow in the grace and the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. Small groups are the perfect place. It's a training ground for how to be a part of the bigger body of Christ. It's a place we can practice humility, practice gentleness, practice patience, and practice accepting one another in love. If you're not in one, let me just encourage you again. Get connected in one of those small groups. We got a multitude of people up here who can stand up right now and just give a testimony to how important it has been in their lives. Jesus' prayer that would, was that we would be one. Our calling is to make it real. We are the answer to Jesus' prayer. If you need a place like this, a place where you can come and connect and grow then if Grace Fellowship is a place God said it ought to be your home, then I want to invite you to come. If you, if you don't have that relationship with Christ, if you don't know him as Savior and Lord of your life, but you'd like to, then I want to invite you to come. If you were where Caleb was at 15 years old, you know Jesus, you've got a relationship with him, but... You kind of fall back, slip back, and you're not as close as you once were, and you're not growing, and you'd like a new start. Then I invite you to come. Whatever it is the Lord's laid on your heart this morning, this is your moment. Would you pray with me?
Heavenly Father, we thank you for this word and for the challenge of unity. But Lord, more than that, we thank you for the blessings of unity. And I pray, Father, that Grace Fellowship will be a reflection of this unity in our community. That the things that bind us together will be far greater than the things that would push us apart. I pray for those this morning who are struggling with decisions. Decisions to come to Christ. Decisions to get connected with His church. Decisions to grow in Christ. Father, if you're calling this morning to, to make a change, if you're challenging them to get away from the status quo, if you're drawing them to yourself, then, Lord, I pray that you will give them a heart to respond. And I ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.